The way I've been thinking about it is, is what are the opportunities as they relate to energy in terms of job creation, which I think is going to be one of, if not the biggest issue coming out of this, uh, at least from the economic side. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we welcome back to the show Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners and Liam Denning with Bloomberg. They joined my colleague Sarah Ladislaw to look back at an episode they recorded earlier this year to see what has and what hasn't changed in the first half of 2020. I'll turn it over to Sarah right now for this great discussion. All right, well, welcome uh, back to Energy 360, everybody. I'm really pleased to be here today with uh, Kevin Book and Liam Denning, who are regular features, uh, occasional regular features in our Energy 360 podcast series where we like to talk about you know, things that are coming up in the world and uh, things that are going on in the intersection of energy and climate and markets and geopolitics. And today we thought it would be um, fun, or at least interesting, to take a look back at an earlier session that we uh, recorded where we were looking at 2019 and what had happened, but then also bravely looking ahead at 2020. And I feel like I owe both Kevin and Liam and all of our listeners an apology. Because when I went back to look at what we said in 2020, I made some very bold remarks about how 2020 would probably be way more interesting than 2019, and 2019 was already a bit of a mess. So I feel like in some weird way, I tempted the fates uh, to bring on a pandemic. uh, And for that, I'm really, uh, really quite sorry. So um, but welcome back, Kevin, and welcome back, Liam. Hi. Hello. It's good to be back. It's good to it's good to be home and back, back and home at the same time. Back and home at the same time, the life we live in. Okay, so just to remind you guys of a few of the things that we talked about, because um, it was only five or six months ago that we recorded that podcast, and yet it seems as if the entire world has changed. When we were looking ahead to 2020, Uh, We obviously foresaw the global pandemic. No, sorry, we didn't do that. Uh, We we did, though, uh, say that it was probably going to be a year where we would continue to see dynamism in trade tensions. Um, But at that time, I think we were wondering, you know, whether uh, the China trade deal was going to succeed or fail. and, And we talked a lot about that. Um, We also uh, talked about uh, California's climate plans and their ability to actually carry those out in the face of PG&E's bankruptcy. We talked about the convergence of command economies and capitalist systems, a little bit theoretical on that one. Uh, And then we talked about uh, China's energy and climate plans uh, and how important those were going to be and how what they looked like in the world of the U.S. and China sort of decoupling. I'm sure that's one we'll come back to. We talked about the potential for shale sector consolidation uh, and the end of cheap financing. Uh, We talked about the sustainability of corporate green contributions, um, moving from those climate protests to something that looked like climate boycotts. We talked about European Central Bank stress tests and conversations about climate risk. Uh, And then we talked about whether or not corporations would continue to focus on customers and continue this shift to the centrality uh, of customers. Uh, And then finally, uh, we may have remarked, we're still gonna be talking a lot in 2020 about energy transitions. So we covered a ton of ground 
And I thought a good way to maybe start this conversation is to ask each of you, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? Uh, and do we miss anything? And and obviously we're not even we're not even six months through, just about six months through, twenty twenty. Um, so maybe we still have more time for these things to develop. But just that, what has the first half of twenty twenty taught us about some of those projections that we made? Maybe Kevin, let's start with you. Thanks, Sarah. I think if there's anything I've learned, it's not to make bold predictions over Christmas with a full stomach and maybe. Uh, you know, a little bit too much relaxation in one's voice. Uh, much more caution, much more analytical distance. Uh, but I want to commend you. You were uh, you were right to talk about China in in the way that you did. Uh, the the fundamental mistrust that was already sort of underlying a lot of suspicion about uh, certainly in our, our perspective at Clearview about what we thought the the trade deal might not really turn out to be very much. But but so much more than that too about the the way in which China was in conflict with the world. You, you really highlighted that, and I thought you did a fantastic job. Uh, in, the, in the COVID world, you know, we, we've found a lot of new ways to describe old things through a new lens, but it's really more a magnifier than a lens in a lot of ways. And it, maybe we were to borrow from chemistry, a catalyst that speeds things up. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways in which we weren't all that wrong, if you ask me. We were, we were right, and, and mostly for the right reasons, which is the stuff that counts. The one thing I would uh, say about your opening remarks, though, is that the command capitalism discussion, which seemed so theoretical at the point we had it, and maybe before that, when I first started talking about it to people who were like, why are you even talking about this? We are living that now. This is, this is government taking over society in emergency and doing away with a lot of the, the market-based decision-making and capital formation that is the the stuff that we've been talking about for most of our careers. And, you know, maybe it's temporary and transient. And uh, I think there's a lot, a lot of globalist pro-market folks out there who hope it will be. But there's also a lot of folks who are seeing how much power is vested in governments to change allocation systems and the way things are, are being done in general, and certainly in energy. Uh, and that, uh, that while theoretical then, is really practical now. I think uh, we're, we're over and over again, you'll see well-informed scholars uh, rooting the, the pandemic as the starting point of a whole new order, a whole new global system. Now, I think all of us, all three of us over the years have talked a lot about the old system and the things that were changing about it that were probably unsustainable anyway. But here we are. I mean, governments have gotten a lot more powerful. And when you think what that mean for, means for like Green New Deal stuff, you think what it means for the transition stuff we are always talking about? Uh, this could be a very decisive outcome. Essentially, an emergency-empowered president in the U.S., an emergency-empowered Europe, spending money on things that otherwise might not get money. That could be a very big difference. Yeah. Liam, what do you think about that? And what do you think uh, we, we missed or got right? Well, I would, I would echo what Kevin said in, in terms of saying we, we mostly got things right, obviously. We were, <laughs> we were quite accurate, despite Obviously. the fact that... Everything has gone to hell this year. Um, I, you know, I would, I would echo some of what Kevin's saying. You know, one of the more surreal episodes in what has been, you know, three or four months of them was sitting through that 10-hour hearing of the Texas Railroad Commission and hearing red-blooded wildcatters, um, you know, begging regulators to effectively step in and control the market and 
you know, that to me was just such a great example of, of how COVID has turned expectations on their head. Um, and and I, I also think, you know, Kevin's comment about it being more of a, uh, a magnifier. Um, I think that's true because obviously, you know, a lot of the commentary around energy over the past couple of months has been centered on, you know, has COVID changed the world? You know, are we all going to be working from home? Are people ever going to fly again? And that sort of thing. And I think in some ways, the problem for the energy market may be that it hasn't changed the world enough in certain respects. So, you know, looking at this week with what's been happening in, in with, with Hong Kong, especially, um, you know, the trade war narrative is still very much alive. And in fact, even probably even more so than it was. I mean, if we go back to the, the 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 phase one deal in January. I mean that all seems like a very long time ago now. Um, uh, and similarly, you know we've obviously seen OPEC plus take supply off the market. We've seen U.S. shale producers take supply off the market. But again, if you if you if you take yourself out of the moment of you know oil prices recovering over the past month or so from from their you know their negative close in April. Um, Again, you look at that and you say, well, the momentum's good, but um, but really, what are we looking at? We're looking at a market that's edging its way back up, mainly because we're holding a ton of spare capacity off the market uh, in the face of an uncertain demand recovery. Uh, the IEA's investment report that came out um, earlier this week uh, showed that even before COVID showed up, we, we had a massive over overbuilding of refining capacity uh, you know the, the market is still facing this abundance narrative and and, and again COVID-19 hasn't really changed that what it's done is magnified it yeah I think that's right I, I think the idea that COVID has magnified things that were problems before or issues before right so the scarcity versus abundance I mean you really realize abundance when demand drops off by 30 percent right uh, overnight um, but also, Kevin, as you said, the idea that it just accelerated a lot of dynamics that were at play before has been pretty profound. Um, I'd have to say there were a lot of folks initially when the pandemic hit and we thought about it and uh, and thought about what the reaction would be. People went back to 2009, right? That makes a lot of sense to do that. It's the last economic crisis um, that we could talk about. And people were talking about really quick recovery programs, right? I mean, it was sort of like, oh yeah, we're gonna have this downturn and then we're gonna have a recovery. And then people realized, well, wait a minute, it might take a lot longer than we think to actually get to recovery because this is not like the last crisis. And they also thought, hey, maybe we'll all get together and governments will make a plan and then we'll have a plan and, and we'll coordinate our plans. And multilateralism will kick in. And that didn't happen either. In fact, some of the same things that were pulling apart global cooperation and global coordination are just accelerating like really quickly right now. Uh, and so there are efforts here and there to try and pull some of that together. But I think it's been pretty remarkable to see how quickly people realize that there's a real difference among governments in the world and their capacity to deal with emergencies and their capacity to recover from emergencies and that there's not a lot of appetite to um, cooperate in very sort of traditional ways 
the ways in which we would have cooperated over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And so it's been it's been kind of interesting to see that. And I think it causes folks who think about climate change as a globally cooperative endeavor to have to think about that very differently going forward. And I'm not sure we've done that yet. So, so this conversation is making me think about how oftentimes, I don't know about you guys, but every two days or so, getting asked to participate in a panel or a conversation about how COVID has changed everything. And then going through the conversation and having concluded that, well, maybe COVID's changed nothing. So I was just curious, you know, your perspectives on whether and what COVID has actually changed and this experience has definitively changed uh, versus maybe not changed at all. Uh, Liam, I think you started talking about this a little bit, but Kevin, do you want to start? Well, so when we talk about what changes, I mean, are, we, are we talking about how, how people live or about how energy works or about how economic systems behave? Uh, are we talking about politics? I mean, so much of what energy is about isn't really about energy itself. There's fantastic engineers out there. Pretty much every sector of the industry is full of incredible people with not many people. That's part of the problem. It's not very labor intensive. They generate an immense amount of energy. But you know, what are we doing with that energy? Are we living in cities or are we living in suburbs? Do we need large homes that are gonna be much more energy intensive? And will that net out to a different pr consumption profile because we've done away with the offices that were also energy intensive? You think about all that dissipates from building envelopes that could be more efficient. Would we be a much more efficient society if we all worked from home? I mean, if we really start doing that, you start to get very, very different changes uh, than the ones you might be thinking about. For example, like, what is the premium on jet travel right now? Well, imagine you spend almost every single day in your own house. I think we're probably not going to give up on airplanes because of that. I think vacationing far and wide will become a far more prevalent thing. Uh, nobody's gonna wanna staycation if all they do is stay at home working and living, right? There's a, there's a lot of counterintuitive results here that if you, if you start to roll through whether or not we're really changing, some, Small things, just working from home more, could have enormous spillover through the energy system because of the part in the middle, which is people. Mm. The one part, though, that hasn't changed, and, and, and the one that I, I think we should all be very mindful of, is that there's still 30 million people in the United States alone, thereabouts, you know, continuing claims revisions to the downside and all that, who have lost jobs fairly recently. And a lot of those jobs were jobs that could not be done economically or safely in a world of communicable disease for which there was no immunity. There are also jobs that could be replaced in some cases by automation. In my neighborhood, there's a cute little car. Uh, it's a little robotic car that delivers food from the local Italian restaurant. Uh, it, it very slowly traverses the sidewalk with all sorts of sensors. It's, it's like one of the Teslas, except the driver's not asleep at the wheel uh, while the thing's going 90 miles an hour on the highway. Uh, and uh, with all these optical sensors and artificial intelligence, it has totally displaced the person who could be delivering the pizza. Uh, as employers are looking at who they're going to hire back from those 30 million and all the other millions in all the other countries, we could be seeing something that would be very, very different, which is that the, the real costs of people got a lot higher, right? The people haven't changed. In fact, we're doing some of these jobs the same way we did for centuries. But now the employers who employ those people are thinking about them very differently. So the fact maybe that we haven't changed is going to be what causes change. 
Hmm. Was that too convoluted? No, it's making, you know, working from home and getting your food from robots. I got it. <laughs> Liam, what do you think? I think it's very hard to say on the demand side, what's going to be a lasting effect and what won't be. I mean, the nearest I've come to it is on air travel. Uh, but again, I, I find it hard to believe that the, the discount air travel business is going to work terribly well in a world where we still have a lingering fear of infection if there's no vaccine or that sort of thing. If only because even if people are happy to jam onto the planes, they'll probably still want them cleaned properly. And that takes away the whole quick turnaround model that works for that, that kind of a thing. On the other hand, if you get people back to the point where they're happy to get on the subway, on the New York City subway, then they're probably happy to do anything at that point. Um, because that's, that's kind of the ultimate test of, of non-distancing. <laughs> um, for me, I, I think the most consequential change that's definitely happened so far is on the supply side. Um, you know, I remember when, uh, when the OPEC Plus agreement broke up at the beginning of March, what I, the way I characterized that was I said that Russia and Saudi Arabia had killed hope in the market. And, and by that, I meant the, the, the shale model in particular has always rested on that sense of hope that even if you're not making a profit today, you will make a profit five years down the line, either because you'll become more efficient or because the oil price will rise and, and you'll grow into it. Um, and I think when when that happened, it kicked away one of the last puts in the market. And that's really we, when we began to see certainly some of the larger frackers uh, start to talk about, you know, instituting dividends, scaling back production growth and that sort of thing. And that's certainly accelerated. I don't think that will change, even if we see demand come back a bit stronger. I just think the, the capital market's tolerance for that model has gone. It was going anyway, and I think this has just killed it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and this will probably sound quite self-serving, but I do think my prediction of consolidation <laughs> in US oil supply is going to come to pass relatively quickly and probably faster because of this. Um, beyond that, again, it's it's very hard to say what the final impact of this will be for, say, the renewable sector, you can you can kind of make, you know, puts and takes. I mean, you raised a very good point about what this has shown in terms of our rather more Darwinian rather than Kumbaya response to a, to a global pandemic, even within the country, not necessarily between countries. Um, on the other hand, if we do end up with a big stimulus program, you would think because of its labor intensity, because of its more kind of you know, economically nationalist flavor uh, that renewables and electrification might benefit from that. But again, I think it's too early to say, certainly this side of November. So I'm going to want to come back and have you guys make some predictions about U.S. stimulus. But uh, Kevin, what do you think about um, what Liam was just saying, both on the U.S. shale side and then on the OPEC side, I, you know, it's just been such a remarkable period for oil markets. I, I agree with Liam. I think he was right. The consolidation phase is just going to be on fast forward because of all of this. But then the longer term question is, does it ever come back the way it was? 
what becomes of it, what becomes of the relationship between the United States and OPEC in this really remarkable period of time where we really kind of rolled up our sleeves and got involved in in, in those discussions in a way that, you know, we all appreciate that those things used to happen in quiet phone calls behind the scenes, but this was a pretty overt U.S. involvement in uh, in, in OPEC's uh, discussion. So, I don't know, Kevin. What do you what do you make of all of that? Well, the um, the presidential involvement in OPEC Plus was the sort of thing that you would think was very strange if you hadn't just seen the presidential negotiation of fiat purchases with the second largest economy in the world. Right, the China trade deal prefigures it in a lot of ways what we were seeing during the the U.S. involvement in OPEC Plus. Uh, it's the U.S. saying, "Well, we are the." you know, the big market and the big believer in markets, but let's put aside markets for the moment and let's have governments negotiate what should happen here. Uh, it's not the sort of thing one typically expects to hear from a Republican president, but I think it's been adequately documented that the current Republican president is a different kind of Republican. The result, though, was that it broke down a crucial barrier, which was the, the adversarial perception that, that there were two sides and that the consuming nations that the U.S. had once been part of and the producing nations that the U.S. is now part of were on opposite sides. What was abundantly clear is that on all sides there was extreme concern. Uh, and the, the only real multilateralism that's been successful in the crisis was that multilateralism. Strangely, uh, for all the people who've tried to get together to save various environmental causes, Saving the oil market is the only thing that's brought this kind of unity in recent memory at such a high level of government from so many nations. And what was curious was that the consumer nations, remember the ones who think of the producers as the adversaries in that old model, were just as concerned about what could result from this enormous collapse. All the, 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 the energy loss that would mean higher prices later, the economic collapse that could bring the consuming economies of the world down with the producers, the, the global freeze that would hurt everyone. Uh, it was really, you know, it, it was an unusual moment in that respect. And U.S. involvement at the center of it more so, again, were it not for the fact that U.S. involvement has become much more muscular, much more, uh, not to harp on it, but much more of a command capitalist intervention into the old world of market allocation. Markets still do what you tell them to do, right? So cut 10 million barrels per day, plus a little bit more, plus what's shut in out of supply, and the price goes up. Markets are, are efficient in the sense that they do what they're told when things happen. But what was the motivating force? What was the precipitating event that focused minds? Well, some minds were being focused by the bottom line, and some minds were being focused by a hard line. There was a, a very weird, unusual moment of a different sort underlying that weird, unusual moment which was that Republican senators were threatening to side with liberal Democrats who wanted to take away military alignment with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, threatened to do so credibly and repeatedly and with the support of the administration. Uh, that was a very unusual moment. Uh, and again, it goes back to a muscular sort of force projection modality and not a market basis at all. You know, Kevin, the, you had brought up a little bit earlier this idea that um, 
when we talked last time, we didn't know who the presumptive Democratic nominee for the election this year would be. We have a better sense of that now. Uh, and Joe Biden's campaign has a sort of a new opportunity in front of it, which is to not only potentially spend a lot more money, but also a lot of the origins of a new deal, the collapse of the economy, the need to put people back to work, all of those sorts of things has given a lot of reason for the campaign to try and create a big happy family out of the left and the the sort of more moderate parts of the Democratic Party. I was just curious, maybe Liam, you know, what you think might come of that. I had said and I think maybe, Kevin, you had said on, on the previous podcast that we were going to go into a general election, and in general elections, uh, relative to primary elections, parties moderate themselves, right? They start running to be the president of the whole country, not just uh, not just the sort of, um, just their party. Um, oddly enough, that's not exactly the dynamic at play here. What do you make of that? I mean, do you think that the platform for the Democrats will be much more liberal as a result, not more liberal as a result, or uh, or about the same as it was? To be honest, I think you guys are probably better positioned to talk about that in terms of the national politics. Some observations I would have, I mean, I think a lot of it will depend on who Biden's VP pick is um, in terms of where the platform goes in that way. The way I've been thinking about it is, is what are the opportunities as they relate to energy in terms of job creation, which I think is going to be one of, if not the biggest issue coming out of this, uh, at least from the economic side. And I think the difficulty that the oil and gas industry will face, at least based on what happened in the last crash beginning in 2014, is that structurally that just, it, it's not gonna be a job creating sector. Um, if you look back at what happened at that time, you know, using the official stats, the upstream oil and gas uh, labor force collapsed by about 180,000. In the recovery that took hold after January 2017, only about a third of those jobs came back, even though production surged way higher. And now if you think about the energy market we're likely going into, so what have we got? We've got demand recovering from, you know, the, the biggest drop, the biggest annual drop in demand that we've seen in our lifetime. We've got a competitive dynamic that was laid bare when OPEC Plus broke up. And we've got a glut of oil that has to be worked off, that we're building up, you know, even as we speak. In that kind of an environment, it's, the, the onus is going to be on shedding more jobs in the US upstream, not bringing more on, um, because they're going to have to keep their break-even prices low and actually probably bring them down even further, particularly if they're going to now also accommodate, you know, dividend strategies and, and that sort of thing. Um, so... I think it's going to be very hard for that industry to make the case that it will deserve some kind of special treatment in order to you know, help with the economic recovery. And on that basis, certainly I think the arguments 
of those pressing for a, you know, a Green New Deal of some sort, not necessarily what was laid out at the beginning of last year, um, is, is in that sense strengthened because these are more labour intensive parts of the energy value chain. Critically, they have a, a much higher proportion of construction jobs. Um, they can be spread further around the country. They're not, they're not concentrated in this or that, you know, resource holding state. So as I think about that debate, that, that there is a, a correlation of forces that I think does favor the greener slash electrification side of the argument. That's great. Kevin, do you want to comment on that too? I like how, how Liam very tactfully said, why don't you guys start talking about I the know. politics of, <laughs> of the Democratic Party's nominating process and, and what follows from here? Uh, and I'll do it because it's my job, but not with any great relish because it's going to be complicated. Uh, one of the issues that's really very clear is that, that this is not a tack to the center election. No, uh, this is a bring out the base election. And Joe Biden has very consciously in addition to following the Sun Tzu uh, guidance of, of staying out of the way while things go wrong for his enemy, uh, he's, he's actually tacked directly to the left. He's partnered with Bernie Sanders. He's appointed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Green New Deal sponsor, as one of his climate co-chairs. Uh, and, uh, you know, the moderate climate co-chair is John Kerry author of the Paris Agreement from the U.S. perspective. So really uh, not exactly a moderate stance. He's, he's very clearly articulated that he's going to shut down oil and gas production on federal lands, which if we, if we just start from that, we say, so where does that position him vis-a-vis, say, the Obama administration? It puts him, you know, a couple of football stadiums down to the left from the Obama administration. Uh, and so to what Liam's saying, you know, the Obama era recovery depended on oil and gas for jobs. And jobs surged. Labor intensity actually rose because they were still cracking the code on the rock then. So it wasn't a very labor intensive industry. No, not compared to the construction intensive renewables, but it was a huge industry and growing massively. And so the, the Obama administration was forced into an agnosticism that tempered the idealism that was part of the, the president's campaign pitch uh, as a senator in 2008. Well, Joe Biden's not starting there. Uh, he's laid out a very clear case. Uh, he's got 550,000 electric vehicle charging stations. You know, if you think about what that means, there's about 160,000 gasoline stations, right? And you get more gasoline stations and more gasoline, uh, you know, probably come to, you think about all the stuff you buy at gasoline stations, you could put charging stations at gasoline stations. They don't, they don't substitute necessarily one another so much as they could complement. But we're talking about an enormous infrastructure build for transition. It sounds benign if you hear it. It's like, oh yeah, 550,000 electrical sockets. No, it's 550,000 transition toolkits. Uh, you know, selling the same cigarettes, yes, but electricity instead of, instead of liquid fuels. So he, he's coming at this with a very hard tack to the left, no matter how you slice it. And for folks who are in the states that are producing oil and gas to say nothing of coal, it's an unmistakable message. So will Texas turn blue? You know, Texas probably is on its way there demographically for a variety of non-energy related reasons. So, so much it comes up yet again that energy isn't everything. It always hurts me when that happens. But, uh, you know, people in Texas do associate with the industry. They sell hot dogs and hotel rooms to people in the industry. And so it's very curious that he's taken this stance. Uh, maybe, maybe he's surrounded by people who think that the message he's proffering is a moderate one. But there were no moderates on stage during the debates, and he still doesn't sound like one now. 
Okay, one more question to Liam, and then I'm going to have you each make your prediction about the stimulus. Uh, Liam, what does this do to corporations that have made energy transition plans? Uh, most of them, or many of them, have said that they're going to stick with them. Uh, but what do we think about the way that the corporate sector is headed uh, in terms of decarbonization plans and other things? And what have they learned from this experience? I think for the for the major oil companies, I think this it simultaneously makes it harder and easier. Um, so if I think about, for example, Shell and BP, which are two of the bigger companies which have which have announced uh, further reaching um, transition strategies, it makes it harder because. The fundamental problem they always face with these strategies is that you have to take money that would otherwise go into shareholders' pockets or into the business that you know, into some new thing where you have no demonstrated edge, where you're likely going to be spending money for a long time before you make any money, where the returns profile is very different. Um, so it makes it harder for them to justify making that switch. I think on the other hand, it also makes it easier because if only for the fact that a crisis will generally make it easier to wipe the slate clean in terms of your strategy and say, we need to, we need to think differently about things. Shell in some ways has kind of ripped the bandaid off already by cutting its dividend and saying, you know, the current model just, just didn't work. BP has a dividend yield that makes many people wonder right now whether they're going to do the same thing. Um, and they have an analyst day coming up later this year. Although they have actually set out their stall with curious timing, they set out their stall almost exactly the moment this was hitting in terms of saying we're embracing a low carbon strategy and now have said that if anything, they're gonna double down on it. They will get a lot more help in that regard if US politics backs them up in that respect. It'll be very interesting to see what they do if that doesn't transpire. Um, and particularly if we are also in a world that is either in recession or just coming out of a recession and demand is low and oil prices are low. I think for companies that uh, are sort of much more vested in the energy transition theme. So companies like, for example, Tesla, some of the more uh, renewable advanced utilities, clearly uh, a federal policy that, that pushes the country in that direction will be enormously beneficial to them. You know, I don't think it's an accident that, that Tesla has made China a big part of its story now and has been pivoting the equity story quite quite strongly towards China, almost as a hedge against the fact that demand for their products in the US looks like it, it may be, you know, almost saturated almost almost now, even with the launch of new products. Uh, clearly, if they could, if they could uh, have, a, have a domestic environment that was more favorable to that, that was more favorable to the build out of infrastructure, more favorable to more subsidies to support that, Clearly, that would be an enormous tailwind for them, not just in terms of take up of products, but, but what is always important for these, for these companies, because renewables is such a, 
involves such a, a big upfront investment, um, but in terms of bringing down the, the cost of capital, a more supportive political environment helps to bring down the cost of capital, which, which even for a, a company like Tesla, which is, has been around for like 15 years at this point, they constantly need new infusions of capital to, to, to finance the next build out. Yeah, I will say, I find it really interesting. I've talked to a number of companies who grapple with this idea of whether or not they will make the same message that others have, which is we intend to stick with our transition plans and our long-term planning and our climate targets and those types of things. Because they say, you know, sure, we're going to still do that. But in the meantime, we'll fight for survival right those are those are two really hard things to do at the same time and they can be complementary to one another but it's also really hard to do both of those things i've been curious that not as many companies outside the renewable energy sector have picked up on this idea that it's a foregone conclusion that the government is going to start spending a huge amount of money that could impact their ability to compete in a lower carbon future and that it may be in their interest to try and shape that. It just doesn't seem to be, the, the momentum doesn't seem to be in that direction. And I sort of wonder if it's because people are skeptical that that's actually going to happen, particularly here in the United States. Um, which brings me to the question I wanted to put you both on the spot on, uh, which is, what do we think is going to be in a U.S. stimulus package and when? And I guess you could probably start with, do you think we're going to get one? And I want to preface this by saying I don't view what's happened so far as being rebuilding stimulus. That was the let's make sure the economy doesn't collapse suspend, suspended animation stimulus. There's this presumption, though, that there'll be some other version, and the other version will be about fixing something or building new when the economy can actually be stimulated because people aren't staying in their houses all the time. So, one, when do you think it'll happen if you think it's going to happen, and what do you think some of the like, guiding principles, you don't have to say what precisely you think will be in it, but what do, you, what do you think will be the guiding principles for what's in it? I suspect you're both going to say jobs because of what we've already talked about, but... Kevin, do you want to start there? Well, yeah, jobs come up because people have jobs and people vote. And so politicians in democratic <laughs> societies, you kind of get the math isn't that hard on that one. Um, you, you've talked, Sarah, a little bit uh, in, your, in some of your writings about how what you're really looking for is an industrial policy. Uh, and I think that that's really, you know, a big ask for someplace like the United States, where we have we have trouble crafting policies about simpler things than the whole of our economy or even just the most basic subset of a subset. But here we are. Um, one of the things that's very, very obvious is the breakdown of global value chains has accelerated the reshoring wave and built new interest in industrial capacity at home. We said that before. I think we said that in, in December, January, right? This wasn't new. But now it's, it's really clear the economic nationalists have the upper hand. And they have the upper hand. You know, Joe Biden is ready to put sanctions on China. He said so right after yesterday when it was clear that the Trump administration isn't quite yet ready to do that. Uh, they're still contemplating it. They're not threatening it. The Biden administration is trying to already outshine the Trump administration. The would-be Biden administration is trying to outshine the Trump administration on decoupling. They're breaking up before they're even in the couple. Um, so like this is 
this is the world in which we're going to find ourselves. And so in addition to jobs, part of the, the question will be, what are we investing in here at home? What, what are the sectors that government deems strategic? And the polarity shift is, is likely to be just as dramatic on that within energy and outside of it as it would have been on any of the environmental policy or regulatory matters. Um, yes, I expect more stimulus. Our, our history here is that you know, savings and loan is like seven or eight government intervention bills. Uh, you know, this is bigger than that. So we're going to have a long time probably working our way back from this. And the underlying medical challenge of a virus for which none of us have natural immunity, and we don't even know that we can acquire it, uh, is going to mean government intervention for time to come. So shaped by that, we expect more. The last thing I'll say about that is that in terms of what the next one might contain and whether it contains anything for energy at all, I think we're probably stuck more of what you, I, I think of it as stimulus, Sarah. You're, you want industrial policy and you want to call it stimulus. Uh, I just call stimulus like just, just the oxygen for people who don't even have it right now. They can't, they don't have the money to do anything and the government is keeping them from going destitute and creating social upheavals that can't be easily reversed. It may turn out they can't be reversed anyway, but look, Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to do a deal in energy unless it looks better than the last one. Her last deal was in 2015. You know, if you think about it in the perspective of the crude oil export debate, analysts make up numbers or they use numbers to make up numbers. And so I don't pretend this is the real math, but for every barrel that got exported, uh, the, the oil and gas sector gave up essentially one, slightly more than one, one third of a barrel on the grid with renewable incentives. Uh, if you look at the emissions profile, the, the renewables that crowded out gas on the grid only offset about one fifth of every barrel that got exported. So that wasn't the deal she wants. Anecdotally, I'm told she wants $2 in renewables for every dollar for fossil energy. And with oil having recovered recently, that number's probably gone up. So uh, that's not, a, that's not gonna work for oil state senators right now. We're not gonna be having that, that energy discussion now. But after the election, one or two things is gonna happen. Either the, the Trump administration with Republicans probably still controlling at least one chamber, uh, will be in a position to say, here's our industrial policy spending, here's the energy intensive stuff we're gonna build out. Or the Biden administration, probably with both chambers in its control, is gonna be setting up maybe something closer to what you're talking about, sir, an industrial policy. But when they do it, they're still gonna own the oil industry and they're gonna need it to work because it's a huge part of our economy, which means that no one wants to talk about a deal now. But on the other side of this election, both the renewables that seem unthinkable to Republicans and the oil and gas sector that seems untouchable for Democrats right now are probably both gonna be in play in future stimulus bills. All right, yeah, I think that's good. And just to be clear, I'll stop I'll stop short of industrial strategy so long as we just like make some sort of plan. Like some some sort of plan, just a strategy. I'm just, sorry, I oversimplified. You're absolutely right. No, I mischaracterized. <laughs> you, you wrote a very detailed and thoughtful column and I reduced it to a sound. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just do All right, Liam, time for your projection. I think you might be getting your hopes up too high there for the whole plan thing. Um, I know. Uh, so like, um, like Kevin, I think in some ways it's a bit of a coin toss depending on what happens in November. In terms of how it might be shaped, I mean, you know, there is this kind of amorphous idea of stimulus being a glob of money that will be thrown at, you know, whichever favoured projects there are. I've been trying to think about 
how it might be channeled. And I guess, you know, one of the things I think is, is that if you want money to get to work quickly, you, you, you generally try and go for established channels. And I think if, if this does go down the path of there being a more kind of electrification or greener kind of plan, the, uh, the investor-owned utilities and publicly-owned utilities are probably going to be one of those channels, if only because, you know, if you look at the scale of the workforce and you look at the scale of the investment opportunity in, in the sense of what bits of this chain can take large quantities of money and put them to work quickly, the electricity grid is, is an obvious candidate. And, and we know this partly because what's been happening over the past decade or so is uh, more and more of utility capex budgets have gone into grid hardening, uh, getting them ready for renewables, getting them ready for vehicle electrification in certain areas uh, and that sort of thing. And so my, my guess is if we do get that kind of stimulus, the, uh, the utility sector is probably going to be a very large beneficiary of it because they have, you know, the established state relationships, they have the established workforce. Uh, it's, it's a huge infrastructure friendly um, uh, sector. And so it kind of ticks all the boxes for a politician who wants to go out and, and, and trumpet that as a, as a way of pulling the economy out. On the oil side, I think it's quite interesting, you know, um, a couple of things. One is at the state level, you know, again, going back to that Texas Railroad Commission hearing, you know, one thing I did wonder is one of the speakers throughout this figure of there being, you know, almost 3,000 producers in Texas who effectively produce around, a, you know, a million barrels of oil a day equivalent. So it's not even all oil. A lot of it is, is gas. You know, these are tiny kind of backyard, you know, averaging of, of maybe a couple of trucks worth of oil a week uh, in terms of production. And it, it did occur to me, you know, that was a sector that, that really was kind of barely clinging on even before COVID struck. And so I do wonder if for a state like Texas, will it almost embrace some kind of welfare for these, for these producers, these, you know, these family or mom and pop producers or, or whatever they are, uh, who are essentially facing that, that revenue stream kind of going away. Um, and then at the national level, I think one nuance around what happens with help for the oil and gas industry is kind of where we are in that consolidation process, just from a lobbying perspective. Because for the larger oil and gas producers, in some ways, they don't want stimulus given to the sector. They want a washout. They want the marginal barrels taken out. They want the smaller players pushed into a position where they accept consolidation, where they'll take a takeover deal, uh, or where they'll restructure and maybe, you know, get rid of 50% of their production. They want a market that isn't just pushing ever more supply into an already glutted marketplace. So I think, you know, if in say 12 months time, we are debating some kind of huge post-election stimulus package, if the industry isn't quite there yet, we may find that the bigger voices on that side of the industry aren't necessarily pushing for a big bailout. 
Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I definitely share Kevin's concern that there's there are a couple windows where some sort of coordinated stimulus around some sort of idea or plan, an industrial strategy, whatever you want to call it, like gets passed, but it's a small window and it's not necessarily what is likely to happen because the issues around energy have not gone any less divisive uh, than they were before. And also it just seems as though the tenor of this stimulus that we've had so far is really about, you know, the very bare minimum to keep things whole and safe and sound, as opposed to being able to find, you know, really big areas and big things to do. And it just doesn't seem like we have the political climate to go in another direction. So if you stack up all the things that might need bailing out between now and the end of the year, like the healthcare sector or states in general. I mean, there's just a really long list. And you add a jobs program to that. It's just massive. It's a huge amount of spending. It's a huge political lift. And you haven't even gotten to the more creative sort of infrastructure oriented or energy oriented ideas that people have. So as an analyst, I sort of feel that we're headed in that direction rather than the direction of doing something really big and bold uh, under any agenda, whether it's AI or anything else, you know, I mean, I just, I I don't see it necessarily being, being that, but, well, listen, I want to say thanks to both of you for being here once again. We'll have to do this again soon, and now particularly that I got some stimulus forecasts from you, we can grade those uh, sometime in the next uh, several months, but Um, Thank you so much for joining, and please be safe, and I hope the rest of the year is tremendously boring. Hear, hear. Thank you. Thanks to Kevin, Liam, and Sarah. We'll be sure to invite them back in another six months to see what else has changed and what to watch out for in 2021. And in case you missed it the first time, there's a link in our bio to the previous episode with the three of them. Find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us at CSIS.org and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.